Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And I want to start, Rory, with a question that shows the unbelievable prescience of some of our listeners. This is a question that we got last October, the 3rd of October, from somebody called George Rose. How scared should we be about current Credit Suisse CDS levels? Did the global financial system learn anything from 2008? Well, I mean... So, Why did we not answer so, so, that at so, the time? So, so, exactly. So firstly, for listeners... CDS is credit default swaps. And that is what six days ago really began the collapse of Credit Suisse. But obviously, George Rose was onto it in October. And is this related to the Silicon Valley Bank problems? Is yes. this a domino so, thing going yeah, on? So, yes, absolutely. Basically, people were so panicked by the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank that they began looking around for other banks to be panicked by, and people began withdrawing money from one of the weaker of the major banks in the world, which is Credit Suisse, and essentially started a bank run. And the result was the Saudi uh, state fund refused to keep funding them. And in the end, the other great Swiss bank, UBS, has had to step in and buy out Credit Suisse. And they've bought it for a fraction of its theoretical book value. I mean, they've bought it for a few billion. So does that mean if you have money now with Credit Suisse that your money is now worth less or not? Uh, If you had certain kinds of instruments, more fancy instruments, not a normal depositor, a normal depositor should be insured by the Swiss central bank. But yes, people with fancy instruments may be in real trouble. And this is about people buying um, high-risk high return instruments, but assuming that they're safe, finding out that they're not safe. And is and part of the reason, as I understand it with the Silicon Valley Bank, is that you and I might have our money in a bank and we think that's where the money stays, but in fact that bank will be putting it into other banks that may be less reliable. Yeah, whole whole series of things. You're completely right. So there's the issue of the credit default swap, which is a mechanism where a bank tries to insure itself by getting another type of instrument, which ensures itself against credit default, ensures itself against losing money on a particular instrument. And these things get more and more complicated. And this was one of the problems in the 2008 financial crisis. But in this particular case, part of the problem is the way that we've regulated since 2008. And in particular, pushing people to put more and more, pushing banks to put more and more of their money into government bonds. And the reason why they did that is that government bonds hold their value So in 10 years' time, you can cash in your government bond, and the US Treasury is not going to default on the government bond. But in the short term, if you are forced to sell, because there's been a bank run, your government bond, you can be selling it for much less than it's worth. And this has also been affected by the fact that as interest rates have gone up, the value of the bonds have gone down. This is a weird mechanism. It's not that weird. But effectively, the price of the bonds is inversely related to the rise in interest rates. So Two things, the way in which these banks were regulated after 2008, and the second thing, which is the rise in interest rates, has created this real weakness at the heart of the system. And banks that were less well-managed, Silicon Valley Bank seems to be one example, but Credit Suisse even more dramatically. They've been through three CEOs in three years. 
They've had a series of catastrophic scandals. They've lost a lot of money. So clearly, George Rose, who asked that question, was one of the people who, by October last year, was already... And his point, have they learned anything from 2008? What you're saying would suggest no. Well, unfortunately, the regulators would say they learned something from 2008, but what they did then created a whole series of different types of problems. But yes, George is right that one of the problems is the complexity of these things. And I was talking to a banker yesterday about the balance sheet of Credit Suisse, and he said one thing that nobody ever explains to you is that these banks are so big, so complicated, that nobody understands them, literally nobody. You can read the balance sheet of these banks and it makes zero sense because at one point Credit Suisse had over a trillion dollars of assets under management and they are every type of instrument. And it doesn't matter how big your brain is or almost how big your computer system is. Nobody has any idea whether Credit Suisse is worth minus 100 billion or whether it's worth plus 100 billion. And and presumably the same, we could say the same for a lot of the banks that are not currently in a mess. 100%, because they, they are, so long as nobody's withdrawing their assets, yeah. there's not a bank run happening. There's nobody, a semblance of security. Yeah, nobody needs to really get into the question of what these things are actually worth. But yet again, we are being forced to confront the potential unravelling of our financial system. So and, Bernie, Bernie Sanders is right. It's okay to be angry about capitalism. And it's going to get, I think, even worse, because <laughs> since 2008, more and more and more of what's happening in these banks is, of course, automated, done by incredibly complicated computer systems, now reinforced by AI algorithms, so that almost nobody has any idea what's actually happening within these mechanisms. Yeah. Okay. My favourite question of the week, Rory. Andrew Hoffman. Rory is the only person I know who says things like, goodness and mercy me. Does he ever swear? You swore on the Iraq podcast. I did. I did. did. You, how did you feel about that after you did that? Did your mother listen? I d- she, she, she did. She didn't tell me off for that. But you're right. I don't normally swear. No, I swear I, a lot. I swear far too you, much. You swear too much. Yeah, I don't normally swear. But th- that issue did wind me up. Yeah. The, the only other thing I swear about is we have a mutual friend that you keep r- raising, and whenever you mention him, I tend to swear. But otherwise, otherwise, I, I don't swear. <laughs> do, you very much. Do, I, do you want to out the person? The no, 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 no. Thank no, you very no, much. No, thank you very much. I'll tell it though. Thanks. You're very discreet. You're very good at keeping my relationships alive by not passing on horrible, malicious gossip to stir up enmity between people. I actually hate malicious gossip. I really do. Well, could you please not contact our mutual friend and tell him that I swear whenever his name is mentioned? I thought you meant the her. (laughs) Right, go on. Here's a question for you. Junior doctor strikes. Ben Evans, I was wondering to hear more of your thoughts on the junior doctor strikes. I feel like both the Conservatives and Labour are really underestimating that goodwill has almost run out and the solidarity among doctors has never been stronger. The point here being that Keir Starmer and the Labour government, understandably, because they're worried about how they're going to balance the budget, are not saying that they're going to offer the pay rises that the junior doctors are asking for. So the junior doctors are angry with both Conservatives and Labour. Mm. Do you think that both Conservatives and Labour are are underestimating that goodwill has run out? And do you think Labour's making a mistake? I think... Well, I think on Labour, I saw Wes Streeting did a very, very good interview where I think it was with Sky News and Sky were trying to get him essentially to say, well, that's all very well, but how would you pay for this? How would you pay for that? And Wes's line was, look, I'm very, very happy to tell you how we will fund the promises that we are currently making. What I'm not going to do is tell you how the government should be funding what they are promising when they know they can't fund it. But Ben Evans, 
I'm a junior doctor. No, no, I get that. Yeah. No, I get wait, that. no, wait, no, this next question. I feel the press recently has been very anti-doctor, especially Wes Streeting, oh. who among doctors sounds like he has no idea what he's talking about, e.g. self-referring to specialist is the worst health policy I've heard in years. I've been a proud Labour supporter all my life, but in the next election, I think I will have to change things. So there's Ooh. you saying positive stuff, but obviously this doctor is okay. furious. Well, I'm sure, no, and I do think that I, I've got friends who are doctors, both junior doctors and consultants, and I think there was a real, ooh, hold on a minute, with that self-referral thing, because I think it's such a complicated idea. And I, I wonder whether that will survive the test of, of, of time. What I do think about junior doctors... I think the phrase junior doctors is so weird because it, you think of a junior, you think of somebody who's young. You think of somebody who's like, you know, very low down the pecking order. Junior doctors are the people that we in the main rely on when we go into hospital. And they're people who are incredibly well-trained, not very well paid. I've had contact from junior doctors I know, one of whom is the sister of another mutual friend, by the way, who say that what they feel really angry and frustrated about and they actually think the BMA has played into this, is that the whole issue is being made about pay. Whereas what they say, the reason they are protesting is because they feel currently unable to deliver safe, basic, decent healthcare. Now, that completely challenges with what Labour is saying. Now, I get why Labour don't want to say we're going to fund this, this and this. I get that. But I do think on the politics of this, the public, I think, are, they were certainly behind the nurses. I think it's very interesting how the media are barely covering the junior doctors' strikes and protests. That march was extraordinary. It was a huge, huge thing. I mean, very rare that you see a march as big as that in London, during, on a weekday in particular, and yet it barely got any coverage. So I think that that's where the public are. They want these people to get a fair deal. So I hope that Labour will sort of maybe push this self-referral thing to one side, and that might make Ben Evans come back to Labour. But I do think on the politics of this, what the Labour are trying to do is to get caught in the same slipstream. And that question says to me they're, they're not necessarily doing the right thing on it. Well, maybe that you're, you've sensed that the public actually want higher taxes and higher spending. Which Labour don't want to promise. Well, they want the higher spending, but they don't necessarily want to talk about higher taxes. Or the other thing I think that's happened recently, which relates to this, we've had a few questions about, about, about childcare. Lorraine Pengilly, massively expensive in the UK, holding women back want to know your thoughts on what the government could do to help parents and childcare costs. So the government announced something in the budget. Announced quite a, quite a big thing. Quite a big package yeah. for very small children. Yet again with this government, not clear how it's going to work, etc., etc. But I think that the reason they did that was because Labour, uh, th- particularly through Bridget Phillips and the Education Secretary, has made clear that childcare is going to be a huge part of the Labour programme. So the government's saying, trying to say, well, we're doing it first. I think Labour held back on the detail. That was a trick that you always did when you were in the Labour government. Every time the Tories in opposition came up with a policy, it's one of the great things <coughs> governments can do. You, you nick a policy that's good, what, you implement what, what it straight away. What policies did we nick from the Conservatives? <laughs> what, what policies did we well, nick? Certainly from the point of view of the Conservatives, they felt, and the oppositions always feel that, yeah, you if, hold back, if, you hold back. If the opposition produces a bad idea, the government shoots it down. If the opposition produces a good idea, the government simply adopts it wholesale. And the, government stand, and the, and and the opposition stands and, there and, saying, and, well, t- it was our idea t- first, t- nobody t- cares. Yeah. Totally get that. So that's, I think, this goes back to our continuing discussion about the Ming Vars strategy yeah. or the Big Bold strategy. Part of the Ming Vars is to say, well, we, we are going to do something big in this area, but we're not going to say what it is until we get very close yeah. to the election. But, but the government 
has sensed quite rightly that when we've talked a lot about this, many, many questions on childcare, it is an incredible burden on people's lives. And the government has now announced that up to, I think, £100,000, children over one, when this policy is implemented, will then get 30 hours of free childcare a week, which will make a huge difference to people. But the problem, of course, when you read the small print, is that I think it's, I'm, I hope I'm getting this right, it's children, I think, who are born after December of this year. So one of the tricks in a lot of these budgets from all these governments is to push things forward, change their fiscal rules, push things into the future. But I definitely think it's a policy that will be hugely popular and very, very welcome. Mm, but I think that if childcare becomes one of the defining big debates at the election, I think that will end up being to Labour's advantage, I suspect. Here's a good one for you, Rory, which you can answer better than I can, although I do know the answer. Why do MPs stand up, Ian Dyer? I've always wondered, why between an MP asking a question the Prime Minister being called to answer, other MPs stand up? They seem to be asking for a chance to respond to the question, but of course it will only be the Prime Minister who gets to answer, so why do they do it? So in order to get to speak in the House of Commons... the speech the speaker's eye. Exactly, the speaker's got to call you. And the speaker's only prepared to call you if you're on your feet, which means that you bob up and down endlessly. So every time anyone else stands, you have to stand. And, so and in, a long, in a long debate, when I was trying to get called... So, I mean, I got so infuriated by this stuff. I was one of the only MPs who'd spent serious time in Syria. And I was trying to get called in the Syria debate. And I was there for three hours and I'd written a really strong 10-minute speech on Syria. You had to watch Peter Bone being called. And and I would stand up and sit down, 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 stand up and sit down. And John Burke never called me. Mm. And at the end of the three hours, I went up to him and I said, John, I am basically the only person in this chamber who spent serious time in Syria. I'm a member of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. Why did you not go? Well, well, Rory, you know, sometimes, you know, customers. It's completely infuriating. And the other thing they do... Can I let you in a little secret, by the way? Yeah, go on. You know our motto? Disagree, agree, Yeah. Do you know who I got that from? Oh, no, please. (laughs) Oh, no, please. If it's not Alex Salmon, it's... John Boko. I I was talking to him and he said, we've lost the art of disagreeing agreeably. And I thought, what a great line. Is that a terrible thing to say? Dom, our producer, has got his head in his hands. Oh, dearie me. (laughs) Dearie me. So thanks, John. Anyway, carry on, Rory. Yeah, so... The, and the other thing that they do, which I don't know whether the public watching understands, is that as the debate goes on, the speaker keeps reducing the amount of time you get to speak. So on big issues that I really cared about, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, that I put huge energy into, I went to Libya the day after Gaddafi fell. You Popping up and down, it starts unlimited. Then it becomes a 10-minute limit, then, then a nine-minute limit. By the time they call me, it's a three-minute limit. Right, Rory, you've had long enough of this. Come on, go on. <laughs> and, <as laughs> you can, as, and, you, and, and when you say that, when you say to that, say to your colleagues, "I cannot," or maybe it's a the four, honourable gentleman will sit down. <laughs> I cannot, you know, within four minutes make all the points that need to be made about what's going on in Libya when I've just come back from a visit to Libya. Everyone says, "No, no, no, no." Any member of parliament worth their salt should be able to make their points in four minutes. And one of the th- objections I had to the European Parliament is they had a 90-second limit on yeah. speeches. Yeah. The idea that you can say anything serious in 90 seconds. Uh, you see if you can do it in a tweet, Roy. Right, we've got loads of questions to try and get through this week, Roy, so let's have a quick break. 
you were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. Now, here's a question from Rachel Pepiat. Yep. I would like to know what each of you likes and dislikes about the other. Let's go on the dislikes. The dynamic between you both is what makes The Rest is Politics such a success, and I love it. So, start with you, Rory. What do you not like about Alistair Okay, Campbell? so I... I'm sure you're asked this the whole time. No, so the, the thing that winds me up most about Alistair Campbell is the fact that the only Conservative MPs he seems to like are real horrors like Alan Clark. Paradoxically, you're only comfortable with Conservative You never talk about people I really admire, like David Gork. You, I like you, David Gork. You, you like, I got David Gork you, to come and speak you, at the People's Vote Rally. The people you talk, and I was very nice to him. He brought his dad and I pe- liked his people dad. People you talk about are the rogues. You only like Conservative MPs when they're rogues, like Alan Clark trying to hand over their Rolls Royces to you. That's my complaint about you. Okay, okay. Uh, what do I not like about Rory? I really, it's not a not like. I find it disturbing that he knows literally nothing about sport. I find that really disturbing. And it makes me feel sorry for him. And I don't like to feel sympathetic to somebody that I'm meant to be, meant to be sparring with. And I think the other thing, you going about, so I think. Can, can I just come on there? I, mean, yeah. I sort of feel that the hours that you spend watching sport, how many hours a week do you spend watching sport? What's 24 times 7? <laughs> no, it's, not that many. It's the actually, time when I can be, you know, reading books. I do both. Developing knowledge. I read yeah, it's only how, that many hours in the day, right? No, I mean, that's true. Yeah, you, okay. You've but, probably but you spent now, I would think, in your life, one and a half solid years of your entire life watching sport. Yeah, but, you know, we spent almost a third of our life sleeping. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. so, no, I tell you, I'll tell you something. I think, look, you're a very decent bloke for a Tory, okay? No doubt about that. So that, that, blows your theory about me completely in a hole. Uh, I wouldn't be doing this podcast with you, though you're a Tory, if I didn't think there was some sort of decency there. But you'd really prefer to be doing it with Alan Clark, wouldn't you? Well, but I'd rather he was alive than dead, because I thought he added a lot of gaiety to the nation. But I think you are... I've noticed, for example, that the two people you most despise, yeah. I think, yeah. one is Johnson, yeah. and I think the other is Sadiq Khan. And let me finish... And I think what they have in common is that you wanted the job that they then want them to get. So I think there's more of a kind of let, 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 let steely determination, let, the killer instinct in let, you than let, you let, 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 let So let you, you're like, you remind me of my Fiona, right, in this regard. right? When we go about, out and about, people see me and Fiona together, and I'm like the big bastard, and she's just the saint, right? And I think with you people that, you know, Alistair Campbell's this horrible, hard bastard, and Rory's the nice guy. And I don't think you're as nice as you I, let on. How can, about that? Can I just put on the record? I think Sadiq Khan is a much better person than Boris Johnson. Okay. Okay. Well, just, I, cut, just cut I, there. Cut there. You don't right. need to say but. Very good. Okay. <laughs> okay, here's a question for you. Jacques Malherbe, mm-hmm. what tip did you receive as a young journalist that you still think is relevant and important? How would you say that in French? Uh, quel conseil? 
Yes. Euh, vous avez reçu. Yes. When, as a young journalist euh, that you ju jeune journaliste that you still think is relevant and important. Qui, est, qui reste euh, toujours euh, relevant. 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 Yeah, I think. Is that okay? Very good, yes. Why is and, he in and, French? Is, is that, oh, just because called, he's called Jacques, you think he's French? Jacques Malherbe. Jacques Malherbe. He could be from Wigan. I mean, you just so hate the north of England. You. <laughs> What uh, tip did you receive that you think is no longer applicable in a much-changed media landscape? No, I'll tell you the tip that I received from my very good friend and mentor, Sid Young, sadly no longer with us. And I remember him once saying to me, and I, I absolutely believe there's a story in everybody. Okay. So Everybody that, you meet. that's still relevant. And what tip, he says, his second question, do you think is no longer applicable in a much-changed media landscape? I was going to say, I wonder whether you really need a 150-minute shorthand, given that, funny if these students I was with yesterday... Do you have a 150-minute shorthand? I did. I don't know. But I, yeah, I still do shorthand, but I don't have a 150-minute. But I noticed with all these students yesterday, none of them were taking notes. They were just tapping on the on a keyboard. So maybe that. Maybe that. I still think shorthand's useful to have, but I don't think it's as important as it was. You couldn't qualify as a journalist without shorthand back in the day. Yeah. Uh, right, and one for you. Hold okay. on. Okay. Well, uh, I have one for you. Guy Elliott, UK Soft Power. Just over a week ago, incidentally, we both agree with every word of what I'm about to read, but I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. To agree with it. The UK's only full-time professional choir, the BBC Singers, oh. was axed suddenly after nearly 100 years of extraordinary service. This has prompted calls from music fans and professionals to propose a boycott of the BBC proms. In the last year, we've seen huge cuts to the English National Opera, Glyndebourne Tour, the Britain Symphonia, WNO, and many other vital musical and art institutions. What can be done to stop this wanton destruction of our rich cultural landscape and heritage? How do we protect and promote the UK's position as a global leader in culture when the current government seems to be ideologically opposed to a diverse, high-quality music and art scene. And that is going, and the rest is politics manifested, to challenge the Labour government to reinstate when they come in. Funny enough, particularly at a time when everything else feels so SHIT, that there's a, always a danger that arts and culture gets hit first, when actually arts and culture are fundamental to all the things that make life special. I thought that one of the, my favourite of many really moving bits of the, the leading interview with Rahima Mahmoud from the Stop Uyghur Genocide campaign was when she said that she's, she's a musician, she's a very talented musician, she said that she saw her music as an act of defiance against the regime because they're trying to erase their culture and erase all joy. And I'll tell you how crazy this, Louise Shackleton, who's David Miliband's wife, and she's a, she's a musician, she's a violinist, and she's been sending me stuff all week, but she's so wound up about this. And she says to this, what on earth is happening with the BBC? The BBC had a headline, Dorset Farmer to Conduct Music at King's Coronation. This Dorset Farmer happens to be Sir John Elliot Gardner, who's one of the, <laughs> one of the greatest conductors there, is, there has ever been. And then there's an American, an American composer by uh, John Adams, American composer and conductor. He has come out and said, I just do not understand that this is happening in Britain. Uh, I mean, that, that is unbelievable, isn't it? So, listen, we are, I've been tweeting away madly for the BBC singers. And, of course, when you do, you get all these Lee Anderson types saying, oh, metropolitan elite, love your singing, all the rest of it. They want to portray all this art stuff as only being for kind of, you know, a wealthy elite. Like, you know, kids in working-class areas don't like to, you know, do arts and culture. So I'm with you on this one, and I really do think, look, it's such an easy thing for Labour just to say, you know. Obviously, it's not their budget. 
Yeah. It's the BBC. Yeah. But for the, if Labour started to campaign now for the BBC singers, I think they'd win it. I do think the John Elliott Gardner thing is absolutely insane. What, the Dorset Farmer? Completely insane. <laughs> so this guy, for listeners, because we'll, we'll put a clip onto, I don't know, English Baroque or the Monteverdi, but this man is an international superstar mm. of music. Yeah. And, and the one thing he's there's not, nothing wrong with Dorset Farmers. One thing by the way. he's not known around the world for is his agricultural practices. <laughs> so there we are. I, listen, if the BBC want to come back and say that was a fake tweet and a spoof or whatever, fair enough. But it was pretty ridiculous, right? Max Ferreira. I've recently been watching The Simpsons, and I came across the episode that Tony Blair featured in. I was shocked that Tony Blair actually voiced himself on the show. Could I ask Alistair how that arrangement came to happen, and what part did you play? Yeah, in go on then. Tell us about that. Would you like to be in The Simpsons? Would you, would you, would yeah, you... yeah, I would quite like to be in Simpsons. Weirdly, the president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani, was exactly identical to Homer Simpson's boss. It's really, really weird. Anyway, yes, go on, tell us about Tony well, Blair. The reason yeah, why yeah. that question leaped out, leapt out at me is because I, I do remember it. I can't remember how it got arranged. The Simpsons basically just asked if Tony Blair would be in it. And I don't think I've ever seen him quite as excited as he was. But no, I think th- Tony's three most culturally exciting moments, there was... Recording The Simpsons and then being on The Simpsons. He liked that. Meeting Barbara Streisand. He was genuinely a bit starstruck with Barbara Streisand. And, and the other one, he met David Bowie at the Brits. Uh, and that was a big deal. That was a big deal. He, he felt, and I remember we got in the car on the are way you, back to the Brits. M- you, said, would you be more excited about meeting David Bowie or Mick Jagger? Well, I met Mick Jagger. I see. Uh, and I met David Bowie. Which was more exciting Bowie. for you? I think, I think David Bowie. I think David Bowie is a bigger historical... I don't know. I think they're both brilliant. Pretty impressive. I don't think. I think when you get to that level, then there was the, the other time was Tony was hosting a meeting of regional political editors in the cabinet room, and there was a knock on the door, and Fiona, my Fiona, who was with yeah. Cherie at the time, said, "Is this important?" And I sort of, no, not really, regional journalist. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> so she said, "We've got a guest," and um, Cherie brought Paul McCartney in. So that was quite cool. That was pretty cool. Now, here's a, an interesting question from Colin Moody. Another podcast I listened to recently suggested that Tony Blair considered sending the SAS into Zimbabwe to take out Mugabe. How much of any truth is there in this? And, and I want to, just on that, talk a little bit about somebody that we both knew quite well, Charles Guthrie, yeah. chief of the defence staff. So he was my neighbour when I was growing up in London. Okay. They're two doors down. I used to play with his sons. And I, I knew him, I guess, when he was first a young colonel. And very sadly lost his, his wife recently. And he, I think, is sometimes remembered as having got into conversations with you and Tony Blair about the feasibility of intervening in Zimbabwe. Mm. Talk a little bit about that. Is that something that you've been open about? I don't remember the specifics of Zimbabwe and Mugabe. I don't think we would have done an assassination on Mugabe. The story at the time, though, is that almost actually in the lead up to the Iraq war, there was huge anxiety about what was happening in Mugabe. And remember, Mugabe had going for listeners, taken over, and in 1983 had led this horrifying massacre of his political opponents called the Gurukhundi. He had then presided over rising inflation, expropriation of farms, and there was increasing pressure, wasn't there, on the Blair government to do something mm. through the late 70s, early 2000s. Yeah, and, um, and Charles Guthrie, by the way, was definitely part of that discussion that led to the intervention that we did in, in uh, Sierra Leone. I remember him specifically coming over and explaining why he felt this was so important. And as you were saying in the discussion about Iraq, you know, the military have their own views. They yep. won't do anything without political, yep. Yep. you know, oversight. But I have no memory at all of a discussion about taking out Mugabe. 
I will say about Charles Guthrie, and I remember you said on the Iraq podcast that you thought I was a bit too sort of respectful and deferential to these military gods and what have you. But I found him an absolutely fascinating character. As you know, I've got this thing about people who wear those pinky bloody, rings, bloody yeah. pinky yeah. rings, but I didn't mind Charles's pinky rings. You didn't mind that. No. Uh, and one of my proudest moments was when I was over at the MOD and he introduced me to some, I think it was an American guy who was wandering around the place, and Charles said, this is, this is Alastair Campbell. He's the SAS of spin. Which I was, you know, very It's a good compliment from Charles. So here's one for you. Pakistan, Edmund Rose. I think I know what you're going to answer this as well. Is Imran Khan pluckily fighting a government which intent on staying in power and therefore trying to prevent him from campaigning and being elected? Or is he a populist who is no better for his country when in power than the various other recent Pakistan prime ministers? Well, Imran Khan is definitely whatever you think about him. I mean, you know, somebody who was very, very well known in Britain, probably the most famous Pakistani um, leader I think has ever been in Britain because he was an incredibly famous cricket star. Yep. Um, married to Jemima Khan. Jemima Goldsmith, he undoubtedly has a lot of populist tendencies in the way he does politics. He's created a whole change in Pakistani political culture. I used to go campaigning with Pakistani politicians in the early 2000s. I remember driving around with one of the members of these Pakistani elite families as she was campaigning in rural Punjab. And she would, we drove in the back of a car the car would drive up to some men sitting on a string bed outside a collection of mud houses. The driver would put down the window and he would say, in the back of this car is Lady So-and-so, the daughter of Mr. So-and-so and the daughter of Lady So-and-so. Will you vote for her in the next election? And the men, it's a very feudal system, would basically stand off their string beds, pull their forelock and say, jihad. And then the car would drive on. And that was political campaigning. Right? So in those days, Pakistani politics was dominated by these feudal landlords who often went back to the British Raj, who were descended from famous saints from the Middle Ages. And what's happened is Imran Khan has created a whole new coalition based on new urban money and youth. He was brought in with the backing of the military, tried to fight against the military. The military essentially threw him out. And there is absolutely no doubt, really, that if an election was held today, he seems to have an overwhelming support, Mm, mm. which would bring him in again. But the current government, which is being run by the brother of the the, the previous prime minister, is technocratic, focused on detail, efficient, and there is a culture war going on. Very classic Mm. culture war between somebody who's a sort of um, Rishi Sunak figure, you know, very thoughtful, serious, technocratic detail against Imran Khan, who absolutely represents public opinion and can deploy huge crowds into the streets. And in the middle of all this is the Pakistan military that still effectively runs Pakistan. Yeah, yeah. Right, let's take this one. This, both the main podcast and the Q&A have been quite gloomy. Let's try and inject a bit of hope. Alex Mee, is there anything about the current political situation that gives you hope? Should I dare to feel hopeful about the future? Or are we just on a giant island-shaped Titanic slowly sinking further and further? Okay, let me try first to go back to you. The thing that gives me hope is that we often talk about an age of populism, but actually there have been some very positive developments. We've talked about the fact that Biden defeated Trump, did well again in the midterms. We've talked about successes in Slovenia, the Czech Republic, people fighting against populists, the teal independence in Australia. Bolsonaro gone. Bolsonaro gone. Boris Johnson gone. Liz Truss gone. So... 
I think populism is still a very, very powerful force in a world of social media, but it isn't always going to win. And perhaps the most optimistic of all is Macron defeating Le Pen. Back to you. I do get hopeful when I do events like I did with the King's College guys yesterday who were engaged, interested. Okay, they're political students, but I think there are a lot of people who are really interested in politics at the moment, but just worried about it. At Manchester City against Burnley on Saturday, I went with my son Callum and was get arriving the way end, and the guy next to me was. Uh, you talk about this this match a lot. Was it? Does well, it, it was because we played so well. Yes, you so we well. We played yeah. so well. well yeah. and, very, uh, very good. You know, we, and as everybody said, as I think Pep Guardiola said in his after match interview, you know, they were lucky to, to get six 0 But so, <laughs> and the first guy who came sat next to me was a guy called Mark, who I'd never met before, uh, and we got chatting about this, that, and the other, and eventually started talking a little bit about politics. And he said, "Look, don't be cross with me, but I've actually." He was in his 40s, I'd say. He says, don't be cross with me, but I've never, ever voted in my life. I've just never bothered. But I'm going to vote this time because we've got to get rid of these people. That gave me hope. (laughs) Put it this way, if this government does hang on for another term, I really would feel hopeless about the future. You'd get get depressed. Yeah, sure. You'd you'd move off to France or something. And I do, honestly, I'm sure you get the same. I think it's hopeful that we've... That you know, I know you've seen it when you just back in London the last couple of days. A number of people who have come up to say really like your podcast. I think that is hopeful uh, because I think it says that people are engaged, want to be engaged, but don't quite know how to be engaged. Which is why Alistair Campbell's book, "But What Can I Do?" May Eleventh, Penguin Random House, is so timely, Rory. Yep, so Alistair timely. Campbell's book, May Eleventh, Penguin Random House. You heard about it first here. Right, thank you all very much. Thank you. 